We have been in a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality over the last while. I've been really blessed uh, to have had an incredible range of people contributing to that series. And today uh, I want to read from John chapter 11, verses 28 to 36 as we get started. Today I'm reading from uh, the New Testament translation by David Bentley Hart, just because I really felt that the words and the way in which he translates this, this short passage really speak with resonance to what we're saying today. So that's John 11, verses 28 to 36. If you've got a Bible on you today, why don't you pull that out? This is God's word. And saying this, she went away and called Mary, secretly telling her, the teacher is here and he is calling you. And she, when she heard this, quickly arose and came to him, now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Therefore, the Judeans who had been with her in the house, consoling her, seeing that Mary arose quickly and went out, followed her thinking, she is going to the tomb so that she may mourn there. So Mary, when she arrived where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, had you been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and yielded himself to his turmoil and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Judeans said, see how he cherished him. We thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Amen. So today uh, we're into the fifth session in our Emotionally Healthy series. And uh, really that series has been about exploring how our emotions play a key role in making us the people that we are, right? Our emotions are a key part of what makes us human and therefore they're a key part of what makes us followers of Jesus. So if we want to be emotionally healthy followers of Jesus, then we'll need to explore our emotional health and learn to be emotionally healthy people. And this week we are thinking about embracing grief, pain, and loss. And as we start to reflect today, it starts with a confession from me, right? And it's this, I broke 2020, right? It was me. So much stuff online about how 2020 seems to just keep on punching. It was me. I broke it and I remember the moment that I did. It was the 31st of January, that weekend around that time. We were away for Joy's birthday. Uh, we went all in. We'd booked a hotel and a restaurant and all of that sort of stuff. And we headed out for dinner. We were generally having a great time. Joy was pregnant. Things were going well with the baby. We just had the opportunity to tell all of our family and friends after coming through scans. We just got the ball rolling on selling our house. I just submitted my latest modules for my master's a week or two before. Church was going great. We were excited about about the future, we were expecting about all that was going on and setting down for a drink in that glass kind of bar in the Grand Central Hotel in Belfast. I remember now looking up at Joy and uttering the words, life is pretty great, isn't it? And that was it, right? That was the moment. That was the moment that the floodgates soon opened. For us, 2020 has went a bit like this. Our little niece, Charlotte, uh, her cancer returned uh, late in February. 
we sold our house and we bought another house in just a couple of days, a few days after that news. Then my mom got diagnosed with cancer. Uh, in the same week that she got diagnosed with cancer, our house sale fell through. Uh, and then literally on the same day, uh, we got another offer from another person and we resold our house about two days later. My mom then got a much more advanced cancer diagnosis. Meanwhile, my master's assignments needed to be handed in. My mom passed away just two days after handing in those assignments. And as I sit here today, we most likely have a house move in about 10 days time before our second child is due in early July. For us personally, this year, has felt like on every level our sense of security has just been stripped away from us. There is a lostness, even though lots of the news and the things that are going on is good, there is a lostness and there is this sense of grief. But then for you right now, many of you feel that way too, whether you know it or not. A month or two ago, the Harvard Business Review published an article entitled That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And it pointed to how the way that we are reacting to the coronavirus pandemic is by experiencing grief. David Kessler, who's an expert who writes on grief, he wrote this in an interview with the Harvard Business Review. The loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection, this is hitting us and we're grieving. Collectively, we're not used to this kind of collective grief that's in the air. We're also feeling anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief is that feeling we get about what the future holds when we're uncertain. Usually, it centers on death. We feel it when someone gets a dire diagnosis or when we have the normal thought that we'll lose a parent someday. Anticipatory grief is also more broadly imagined futures. There's a storm coming. There's something bad out there. But with the virus, this kind of grief is so confusing for people. Our primitive mind knows something bad has happened, but you can't see it. This breaks our sense of safety. We're feeling that loss of safety. I don't think we've collectively lost our sense of general safety like this. Individually or as smaller groups, people have felt this. But all together, this is New. We are grieving on a micro and a macro level. Suffering, grief, and pain are part of a universal human experience of what it means to be alive. As Pete Scazzaro writes, it is the norm of life, not the exception. And here's the thing about grief, right? Grief and pain have no roadmap for the way through, right? But it is possible to build a scaffold to learn how to walk through it. You see, in the moments of our pain and our suffering, we need to know that we will either be transformed by it or we'll be destroyed by it. But the kicker is that we will never be the same. We can't go back. Our grieving and the depth of our relationship with God, you see, are absolutely linked. How we deal with pain and grief are incredibly closely linked with how we engage with God, right? And sometimes we look at some of the pain in our life and we try to push it aside, okay? Like I'm talking about the sorts of pains that you might think other people would find insignificant, right? That job that didn't work out, a house move that didn't work out the way you planned, a relationship that just didn't happen. What we do is we tell ourselves that it was not that significant. So we stuff it down deep in our souls only to find that it weighs us down later. And it never does us any good to compare ourselves to other people 
either. We are all unique people and we experience the world differently. So for example, some of you will have actually found lockdown a total breath of fresh air. You've been loving it, right? You've slept in regularly. You've drank great coffee. You've made great food. You've read about a hundred books. You've completed Netflix. You've loved it, right? Your reflection on all of this is that you have loved all of the time in the space that it has afforded. And yet for others, this has been really, really hard. You've lost your job. You've known financial pressure like never before. You've suffered loneliness and anxiety and depression have run riot in your life. Or you're a parent right now and you are crawling up the walls by how enclosed that you feel. It doesn't matter that others haven't been affected the way you have. It's your experience and it's been a painful one and now you have to start to deal with it. Up until recently, the key work on grief was done by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and she suggested that there were five stages to the grieving process that went something like this, denial, followed by anger, followed by bargaining, followed by sadness, finally followed by acceptance. And when you think about your life, okay, a lot of that will resonate. I mean, just think about your experience through the coronavirus pandemic. For example, it started by denying it. It won't be that bad. Oh, it's just the news outlets blowing it out of proportion. It'll only affect old people and on and on and on, right? That's denial. And then we got angry about it and how it affected us all, that you couldn't believe the things that you weren't able to do. And then we started bargaining. Well, if I just go through with lockdown, then in two weeks time, it'll be over and I'll be able to get back to my normal life and then we experienced great sadness that the two weeks came and passed and it wasn't over or when we look at how it's affecting other people or children and finally we learn to accept it but recently that five-stage process that Kubler-Ross wrote about has been updated to six okay because simply accepting our grief or our pain it isn't enough is it just accepting it doesn't deal with it or it doesn't change it does it we need is meaning And so the sixth stage that's recently been added has been meaning. So we've heard so often in outlets or in kind of tweets from people we follow. I even got a card recently uh, from a niece or nephew uh, talking about this season. And in the card he wrote at the end of it, what sort of person are you going to be when this is all over? In other words, how will you have used this time to bring meaning to your life and to others? As we approach pain and grief today humbly okay we look to the sixth stage of meaning because in grief we find a way to be more like God we find the only pathway to becoming compassionate like Jesus we find a deeply character forming part of our relationship with God and today I just want us to consider two things as we think about grief and it's these that we might learn to be fully present and then we might encounter a God fully human first of those is that we might learn to be fully present. David, King David, uh, is one of the Bible's great figures. Most of us know that he is known as and quoted as a man after God's own heart. And when we hear that very often, it takes us to images of how he worshipped, for example, how we know that he let himself go in worship or the way that he conducted himself or the way that, for example, his childhood seemed to, to have this miraculous feature and God seemed to be at work in that way throughout his life. But perhaps we don't spend much time thinking about how it was directly related to how he paid attention to loss, disappointment, and grief. 
The Bible puts it on show for all of us to see that a man after God's own heart so visibly talks about his anguish. In Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro identifies the period in the life of David after Saul and Jonathan's death. David had had this deep love and respect for King Saul, even though as David had become more and more popular, Saul had tried for years to have him killed. And even more, he had this deep friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Eventually, while David is in the wilderness, he learns that Saul and Jonathan are killed by the Philistines. And David is devastated. But he does something that we might not expect. You see, he doesn't just rush to the next event in his life, you know, to take his place as king and and start to rule and to step into the future that God has been kind of moving in his life towards throughout all of his life to this point. He doesn't do that. He takes time to grieve. He writes a song that you can read in 2 Samuel 1, 17 to 27, where he sings of his pain and the events that have just taken place. But not only that, his next move is not just to sing for himself, but he orders the people of Israel to join him in singing the song. He orders it to be taught to thousands of men of Judah, and he wants them to learn it, to memorize it, to sing it as their experience, not just his. Why? It's a bizarre thing to do, isn't it? Because he recognizes that grief is a pathway to maturity and he invites the whole nation into what he was feeling so that they could grow with him too. And when we experience pain in this life, okay, most of the time we're tempted to do a number of things. We often try to speed through it. We often try to tell ourselves to get over it, tell ourselves that pain is just an inconvenience. Scazzaro writes of a painful experience in his own life, and he says this, God was seeking to enlarge my soul and mature me while I was seeking a quick end to my pain. So often when pain comes, we just try to rush through it out the other side, get life back to normal, back on track. I want my life back. It wasn't that important. Just move on, right? We try to speed through it. Or we try to God-gloss things as well. God-glossing is whenever we try to hurry to bring the revelation to what we're feeling, get some perspective, you know. We try to get to the redeemed part at the end of what happens whenever we get through our pain. We try to get there too quickly and ignore the pain that we're in. It's why when we get texts from people who care for us with passages like all things work for good, that those that love the Lord in the middle of our pain, that it feels so very jarring because we aren't there yet. We're also a world now too in this generation that has feelings about our feelings, right? For the first time uh, in our world, we have feelings about our feelings. In other words, like when we feel sad, we think to ourselves, well, I don't want to feel sad. Why do I feel sad? Well, hang on a minute. My life isn't as bad as this other person has got it. Help me not to feel sad. And then we end up feeling angry about the fact that we're sad or disappointed about the fact that we're sad. We have feelings about our feelings. Or finally, we rush to activism to try and work our way out of it. You know, so much has been said, written, tweeted, commented, and done over the last number of weeks about the Black Lives Matter movement. And lots of times I've wanted to say something, I've wanted to do something about it. But in lots of ways I haven't done that and I'm not gonna make comment about it today because lots of people far more appropriately placed, far more invested in, far more knowledgeable about 
far more attached to that movement, have written things far better than I could ever write. There have been protests and counter-protests. Statues have come down. Statues have got protected. There has been so much said and done over such a short period of time on such a global scale. Do you know what I want to say today? That that movement, that message is absolutely critical. Change has to come around the world. It is totally right. But here's the thing. When we feel what we feel, anger, pain, discomfort, about the plight of black people around the world, and our first reaction is to rush out to activism, whether it's tweeting or it's parading or whatever it is, we so easily rush past the real work which needs to happen in here. To recognize the prejudice and the privilege at work in each and every one of our lives is the most important thing we could do and therefore the most important response is brokenness and repentance to seek to mature as a follower of Jesus, to seek to do the deep work in our character and then from that to let our activism flow. Pain and grief is a pathway to spiritual maturity. I wanna say today, don't rush. Don't gloss it over. Don't get too bogged down and having feelings about your feelings and don't run out into activism. Be fully present. Which brings us back to the Psalms. One commentator reveals that laments far outnumber any other kind of songs in the Psalter. In other words, if this is the Bible's songbook, then we need to see the importance of the fact that it is most full of lament. I mean, just listen to this, right? This is Psalm 13. This is actually a song that was written by David. This is what it says. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I feel. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. This is a man after God's own heart And his first words in this psalm are, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? In his honesty before God, in the way that he writes, David is fully present, paying attention to his own pain and grief. And that's exactly what we need to do too. Yet when it comes to pain, we do our very best to deny it, don't we? We deny and avoid the difficulties and the losses of life, the rejections and the frustrations. Even in church, we do our very best to minimize failures and disappointments. For example, just think about the number of times you've walked into church or in another environment where you have friends, someone has asked the question, how are you doing? And before you can even think, out of your mouth come the words, good mate, how are you? When that couldn't be further from the truth. In many ways, pain is the antithesis of what we think it means to be really living today. I mean, it doesn't post well on Instagram, does it? And so overall, we live in a world that can so often feel superficial and have a lack of compassion. We turn our face away because we try to deny the pain that's in our lives and sometimes try to even deny the pain that's in others. It's like that incredible line in Hotel Rwanda when the media show up and They say, well, at least the world will now know as they reflect on the atrocities that have been committed in that time. And the reporter then says, 
I think when the world sees this, they will say, oh my God, that's horrible. And then they'll go on eating their dinner. We deny it, we avoid it, we minimize it, we medicate it, and we trivialize it, don't we? Pain almost becomes entertainment. When pain comes in our life, we become angry at God. We treat it as some sort of alien invasion, don't we? Like, you're not meant to be here. Life wasn't meant to be like this. I shouldn't be in pain and grief and loss, but it is, and we should. And it's a pathway to maturing us. And so we need to be fully present and pay attention. And one way we feel like living through times of pain and grief are the opposite to what it means to live a full life. But this is what Schizero writes. To reject God's seasons for grief and sadness as they come to us is to live only half of our lives. What makes this particularly tragic is that Jesus Christ came to set us free to engage life fully, not escape from its reality. Pain and sorrow, seasons of difficulty and grief are part of what it means to live a full life. Our pain as it matures us often equips us to be someone who can walk through pain with others too. There's often this feeling of in-between time when it comes to pain, isn't there? Like the period of time between the cross and the Pentecost for the disciples where they were confused and they were bewildered. Even after seeing Jesus resurrected, they were still confused and bewildered. Their understanding of God and his plans and their own failures were undergoing a radical transformation, but they couldn't see it yet. And that's how it feels when you're at pain at time, doesn't it? That you're in it and you can't see the other side yet. And that's just it. People who have walked through pain and grief are the sorts of people who disciple others well through their own pain and grief because they recognize a discipleship that allows us to be disorientated, that allows us to feel disorientated, allows us to ask questions, allows us to no doubt in our lives. In a culture that tries to numb us, True discipleship allows us to speak honestly, not just speed to resolution. It sees that your losses are not just something to get over, but are of huge value to God and huge value to your spirituality and your relationship with him. This is what Christopher Wright writes in his book. So for the moment, I grieve and lament. I weep and I feel intense anger, and I do not hesitate to tell God about it and to file my questions before his throne. The same is true when I hear news of some dear loved one who has been stricken with some inexplicable and incurable illness, whether on a grand scale of massive loss of human life or the intensified intimacy of the suffering of somebody personally known and deeply loved. The response is often the same. You have to pour out your true feelings before God. Feelings that include anger, disbelief, incomprehension, and the sheer pain of too many contradictions. Only then can I come back to praise God with integrity. This is a foremost Old Testament theologian, and he is not holding back, and neither should you. We need to be fully present paying attention to our pain and to the in-between time. That is where we grow. You know, when we planted Central, 
I met regularly with a number of really key friends um, that are also in ministry. And at the time, uh, we were just talking about life and how things were going and, and all of that stuff, seeking input and insight, praying over each other, the prophetic, all of that stuff. It was amazing. We did it kind of once every couple of weeks, and it was really valuable time for me. And at the time, uh, their ministries were going really well, okay? They were flying, growing, the miraculous was happening, all sorts of stuff was going on around all of the things that each of them were doing. I had just left a ministry that was growing and had all sorts of good stuff happening to start to do this, to plant Central. And it was hard, right? We were small, we were homeless, we were figuring it all out. I'd never felt so incompetent in all my life. And in truth, I believed in my heart of hearts that Central was gonna fly, okay? I had believed that we would just rock up and 100 people would be there. Not only that, I believed that somebody was just gonna give us an incredible building and that would further multiply the growth because we'd have a presence in the city center and all of that sort of stuff. And it didn't happen. And it was actually so very hard to be around those people with all of their encouraging stories when all I felt was some degree of discouragement. I just wanted to rush on to the next stage. I wanted to cut to the end. But yet now I know, looking back, that even though I was right in the middle of it then and it hurt to be in the position that I was in, I now know that God was doing something. He was forming in me, in us, He was working, growing, sowing hunger and depth, desire. He was speaking to us about the sorts of people and the sorts of church that we needed to be. He had a plan. And all I wanted to do was throw in the the towel because the pain was too much. We don't get over things. We go through them. But only if we're fully present. And finally, we need to encounter one who is fully human. Because we encounter Jesus, we encounter one who is so fully human and so fully present with us that we recognize his ability to allow the old to birth the new. At the start of today, we read that passage from John 11, and it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is Mary and Martha's brother, and clearly distressed at his illness, they reach out to Jesus to let him know that Lazarus isn't well. And Jesus makes his way to them eventually. And hearing of his death whilst in the presence of Mary, we get the shortest verse in the Bible, one you will know well. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And that one verse, one we so often now hear as a swear word right there in kind of common language, right? That one short verse tells us everything we need to know about the Jesus that we follow about the Jesus who is present with us. Here he is, already aware of how he will see Lazarus healed and raised. He says it in the verses before this. He's going to see him raised, right? And yet there is not one single hint of triumphalism or anything like that. He gets to Mary. He sees this woman grieving and in pain, and he weeps. So a part of Mary and Martha's story and so much a part of each and every one of our stories that his response is to weep, is to feel the pain, to know the grief and the sorrow. You know, I wonder today that when you next hear that phrase, you're writing about, you hear someone say it, you see someone text it, whatever it is. I wonder today if it might redeem it for you that when you hear it, you won't just hear those words, but you will know how present he is with you in that moment. 
And in the times of pain in our lives, we get to encounter one who stands beside us, who is with us, whose image we are made in. Chris Wright goes on to say this, I am not waiting for an answer, but I will not spare God the question. For am I not also made in God's image? Has God not planted a pale reflection of his own infinite compassion and mercy in the tiny finite cage of my heart too? Jesus, fully human, comes to us fully present. He is with me. He is in me. He is like me. And yet he is so very different. And only he can do something with my pain. Because I am made in his image, I get to pour myself out to him who is with me. As real and as raw as it gets, I won't spare him the questions. I won't spare him the doubts. I won't spare him the anger. I won't spare him the bargaining that you try to do with God. I won't spare it because he is so fully present with me and with you. N.T. Wright writes on this passage, and I think it's wonderful because there's that line, you know, that, that Mary uses to tell Jesus to come and see uh, Lazarus. He just says, come and see, and that's right before Jesus weeps. And that phrase is used quite a few times uh, throughout the Bible, you know. Jesus says to see the holes in his hands and his side, to come and see the empty tomb. And N.T. Wright writes this, come and see we say to Jesus, as we lead him all tears to the place of our deepest grief and sorrow, come and see, he says to us in reply, as he leads us through the sorrow to the place where he now dwells in light and love and resurrection glory. We are reminded that in the same way that we don't go over but through our pain, we know that Jesus went through with the cross of the greatest evil, the death of Jesus came the greatest good. God transforms evil into good without ever diminishing the awfulness and the pain of the evil that we're in. And so, Schizero writes, Jesus does something with our pain. If we allow ourselves to be fully present, if we allow ourselves to encounter he who is fully human, he can do something with it. He can birth into the death. This is what he writes in page 175 and 76 of his book. As a result of grieving, we experience new inner births or changes. We have greater capacity to wait on God and surrender to his will. Grieving breaks something in our fearful self-will that wants to run the universe for God. We are kinder and more compassionate. Sadness softens our defense and people will find us safer. Henri Nouwen rightly says that, degree, that the degree to which we grieve our losses is the degree to which we are compassionate. We are less covetous, less idolatrous. Life is stripped of its pretense and non-essentials. We are more apt to rid ourselves of the unimportant things in life that others so desperately want. We're liberated from having to impress others. We can follow God's plan with a new freedom because we are not as motivated to please people. We're able to live more comfortably with mystery when it comes to God and his plans. We're not afraid to say, I don't know, and live in a holy unknowing. We're characterized by greater humility and brokenness. We enjoy a new vivid appreciation of the sacredness in all of life, the changing seasons, the wind, the falling of the leaves, the holidays, other people. 
We have fewer fears and a greater willingness to take risks. We sense the reality of heaven in a new way, understanding more fully that we are not, that we are only aliens and sojourners on earth. We have a greater sensitivity for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the marginalized and the wounded. We understand them. We are more at home with ourselves and with God. And he goes on to say that layers of our counterfeit self are shed. God, because he is so fully present, so fully human, can birth into the old. And we can see something new come to life, even in the deepest, even in the things that cause us our deepest pain and our deepest grief. Just as I finish today, I'm here speaking not because I'm any sort of expert on grief or pain, but because when I knew this topic was coming in the series a number of weeks ago, I knew that I was right in the middle of it. In moments, I'm angry. In others, I'm thankful. In many, I'm experiencing the gift that tears are in a greater way than I have ever known in my whole life, sometimes around big things and sometimes around things that are small. I can't say that I feel life in the death right now. Everything hurts, even the good things, even the things that should be enjoyable just remind me of the pain. I can't say that it has been turned to good yet, though my dad has managed to cook two Sunday roast dinners in two weeks, and that is some sort of miracle. Though that doesn't even nearly begin to balance the pain and loss. I am learning to be somebody who is present, who stays present, who pays attention to the pain, pays attention to the in-between time and believe for the birth to come while I encounter Jesus fully human and fully present with me in the moment that I'm in. Maybe that is you today too. Maybe wherever you are, you find yourself in pain and in grief of many kinds. Maybe you have felt before now that it's just insignificant and you've just been burying it down. Maybe it's very real. Maybe it's been set on by this pandemic. Maybe you were carrying it into it. Maybe it's been coming. I want to say to you today to pay attention to your pain. Don't avoid it. Don't run from it. Don't gloss it. Pay attention to your pain today. Be fully present where you are and allow him who is fully present with you, who is fully human, who is fully God, to do something with it. I just want to read something as I close today. I had the sense that it might speak to somebody today. And it's a poem, actually, uh, that a good friend sent to me as my mom's condition was going downhill. And it's a poem by John O'Donoghue. It's from a book called Benedictus. And I wanted to read it um, today. It's, it's reasonably long, but I think it's incredibly powerful, incredibly moving. And I, I really believe that it was going to speak to some people today. So wherever you are right now, I wonder if you would just close your eyes. And as I read, let these words speak to your soul today. And then I will pray at the end for the one who can transform the one who meets us where we are, the one whom we must not spare our questions and our doubts and our pain today, that he might meet you there wherever you are today. Let's read. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. 
then all the unattended stress falls in on the soul like an endless increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. Things you could take in your stride before now become labor, some events of will. Weariness invades your spirit. Gravity begins falling inside you, dragging down every bone. The tide you never valued has gone out and you're marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down and you cannot push yourself back to life. You have forced, you've been forced to enter empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished. There is nothing else to do now but rest and patiently learn to receive the self you've forsaken in the race of days. At first, your thinking will darken and sadness take over like listless weather. The flow of unwept tears will frighten you you have traveled too fast over false ground. Now your soul has come to take you back. Take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rush through. Become inclined to watch the way of rain when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that fosters the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Stay clear of the vexed in spirit. Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels that they have all the time in the world. Gradually, you will return to yourself, having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells deep within slow time.